Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about her experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you Cindy Williams, the star of the famed sitcom Laverne and Shirley. And she'd say, do you know your lines? And I go, no, do you know yours? She said, no. <laughs> and so, action! And, the, and we'd just go out. She also acted for two of the best directors of all time on two of the best films of the 70s. Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation and George Lucas's American Graffiti. If that's not enough for you, she even helped produce the remake of Father of the Bride, starring Steve Martin. Wait, 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 Mr. Slotnick, I'm the brains behind that basket! Karen, I'm telling you, it's a jungle out there. We ought to take a cage and just put it around this place. These people are ugly. Those hills do not make her perky, they make her jerky. Boy, you just stepped straight off the bus right into filth town, didn't you? I do not approve of this hitting. I find it inhuman and only mildly exciting. <laughs> Miss Williams actually got her start the same way most actors do, by performing for her family. I always could mimic. My grandma was the first one on the block when we lived in Texas to get a, a television. And I was mesmerized by it, and I would watch anything and everything, and I would mimic commercials, like Lucky Strike commercials. They had a girl dancing. You didn't see, you just saw her legs and arms, and there was a hat on top of a Lucky Strike box, and she'd dance, and they'd sing the little commercial song. And I would sing the song and mimic. And I, I always put on, with my sister, shows in the garage. I'm sure all you guys did things like that, or made little movies. So I always had a love for it, but I never, ever thought of it seriously as, oh, this is going to be my career, this is going to be my life. I wanted to be an ER nurse, actually, but I didn't have the academic wherewithal. I was a C student all the way through school because I'm dyslexic, and in my uh, drama class was this wonderful actress, and her name was Sally Field. And at 15, she was brilliant. And so I did plays that Sally and I were in, and we'd do A cast, B cast, because there were too many students to play, you know, so you'd do two performances. I was always B cast, and she was always A cast. And A cast got to do like four performances and B cast three. So uh, a lot of the students who were in the class were going to this wonderful school called Los Angeles City College, which has an incredible theater arts department. And I thought, okay, I'll go there. And um, so I did, and very tough curriculum. Uh, in fact, during orientation day, one of the professors said, there are 236 of you here today. By the end of two and a half years, there will be 12 of you. And that's how they weeded people out. I mean, you, you were tardy three times, out. You didn't get your, uh, you didn't have your scene work done, out, goodbye, gone. But they did incredible theater, incredible productions. So that was a big deal. But by the time we finished there, and I, I just garnered an incredible love for theater. I love being on stage, but I thought I was going to go on to teach 
except one day I was in a class and the professor was, and we were in the main theater and the stage was there and the curtains and we were sitting in the, you know, in the seats in the auditorium and he was talking about theater being bigger than life and up to this point I had thought, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll get my BA and I'll teach theater and then I had this vision of myself, my students, rehearsing the production and me walking down the center aisle, crawling up onto the apron, pushing them all out of the way and saying, let me show you how to do this. And I thought I could never teach. I could never, ever teach because I love doing it. And so that was the end of my, of my teaching career. For everything that Miss Williams learned in school, there were still two things that she was not taught. The intricacies of breaking into the film industry, and that sometimes you need a bit of luck. In Los Angeles City College, they do not teach you. You know, they put you out the back door and they did not prepare you for film. They didn't prepare you how to get an agent or how to even work. They prepared you to go and audition for regional theater or Broadway, and that was it. And so you just live on your youthful enthusiasm of knowing you can do it. And so that was kind of it. And I also thought, well, lightning better strike because I don't know what I'm doing. So I just went on this journey. But you have youthful optimism and you, you feel as though the world, it's all in front of you. And it is, believe me, and there's nothing you can't do. And I felt that way. And, you know, you get knocked down to the ground, you just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. And that's kind of how that aspect of my life played itself out. And as far as getting a job, I had this roommate. She was in this program for AFI. It was called Young Filmmakers or something. And I was waiting tables and she said, hey, Cindy, you know, maybe you could go and get in this program. So I went there and I met with them and they said, you know, this is really uh, a program for filmmakers and you're an actress. And I said, yes, but you know, I think I could write and I could direct and put myself in it. And, um, and they said, no, no, this isn't for you, but we have, and this is how things work. You're just one day, something's plopped down in your lap and it's just that magical thing. And so and they said, we're going to set up uh, an interview for you. These two men are starting uh, a management company. And the names were Fred Roos and Gary Marshall. And so I went to meet them, and I remember Gary said to Fred Roos, who produced The Godfather, and many, many, many other things, he said, I like her, she's like a pudgy Barbara Harris. <laughs> and I loved Barbara Harris, so I took it as a great compliment. And so then it sort of spun from there. It didn't take long before Miss Williams found herself working for the likes of Coppola and Lucas. And there was one time she even had to put in a good word to help none other than Harrison Ford land the role that made him a star. Harrison Ford in American Graffiti made $400 a week for four <laughs> weeks. And he was working as a carpenter. And that's a, a real success story. And for Han Solo, we begged George to cast him because he was such a bad boy on American Graffiti that George was a little reluctant about Harry because 
he's just, you know, I screen tested for it. It was miserable. It was, because it was all looking to the right of the camera. That's what George said. And he said, and you're looking at the universe. You're steering the ship. I go, the ship. Okay, where's the wheel? And it was like all this dialogue about, you know, galactic dialogue. And nobody could get it. And George is not exactly a people person. I believe if George could have robots playing, you know, and I think he's discussed this with Steven Spielberg, actually. <laughs> and he's very shy and retiring, and his genius is all in his whole perception of what he wants on screen. And so you can say, you know, could I try it this way? Absolutely. Like the scene in American Graffiti where Ron and I had to make out and then go, and, and we were both so nervous. And I said, George, how about if we just go out of camera down onto the seat? And he said, yeah. And that's how we did it. But George will never tell you anything. It was a joke with Ron and myself. We'd say, George, how was it? And he'd say, terrific. And if you ever ask Ron Howard what George Lucas says the most, it's terrific. Terrific. Despite being frequent collaborators, Miss Williams explained that George Lucas's directing style was vastly different from Francis Ford Coppola's. Francis is your quintessential director, and he's operatic. You know, I mean, you know you're in a movie with Francis, and he loves actors, loves them, and admires them, reveres them. And he's so intelligent. He'll ask his actors what they think of this scene. For the conversation, he said, who do you think did it? And all of us said, you haven't written the end yet? And he goes, no, I haven't. And we said, holy crap. But he is... Just so much bigger than life. He's like, uh, I don't know, somebody like Michelangelo or somebody. He's this just great, great artist, and he will direct you. And I had this tough thing he asked me to do in the conversation, and I said, I don't know how to do this. And, and it was a turn. He wanted me to turn and look at Gene Hackman with a look of, if you come toward me any closer, I'll disappear into this fog, and you'll never find me. And I thought, okay, how do I... It goes back to interpreting that through your body. And I said, Francis, I, I don't know how to do this. I, I just don't know. And he thought for a minute and he said, when he's chasing you, take every step except the last one. And then when you take the last step, turn to him. And that body movement propelled me into that look. It just gave that indication of... I will be gone if you come any closer to me. And he just turned it like that. And the other thing he did in the beginning of the conversation, it's the scene in uh, Union Square, he went to each and every one of them and took them aside and gave them each characters to play. And that's why when you see the opening of this movie, it is so rich. And that's how he is. He's just rich with just creation. Even though she was working on some incredible projects, Miss Williams felt limited by the best friend role that she kept getting, a trend which finally changed when she was cast as Shirley. I was always cast in the beginning as a Leeds best friend 
Oh, don't worry, Monica. Johnny will be coming back to you. You'll see. And it was always stuff like that. And I never got to play comedy, which I loved. And uh, like in American Graffiti, I said, oh, please, Fred. This girl cries the entire time. There's no fun. I want to play Debbie, the bad girl. And he said, it's already cast. And I said, well, then what about uh, Carol? He said, 12-year-old. And I said, I can put braces on my teeth. He goes, I'm actually casting a 12-year-old in that part. So I knew I could do physical comedy. I knew I could do comedy. And I wanted to play it so badly. I mean, we did um, The Imaginary Invalid in college, but that's not really comedy. It's like restoration humor. But no, I never got to. And even when we did Laverne and Shirley, I had to beg Gary because he let me do humor, but he kept saying, no, you're the nice one. You're the solid one. You know, you have your head screwed on straight. You keep Laverne, you know, steady. And I said, yeah, but you know that physical comedy, I can do that. And he, and he wouldn't let me do it, wouldn't let me do it. And finally, I must have dogged him so much that he said, all right, I'm going to write you something. We'll see how you do, and that'll be the measuring point. So he wrote me this little thing where we're cleaning house, I believe that's it, and she gets the vacuum cleaner stuck on her mouth, <laughs> and, she can't, and I come through the room, and it was just written, Shirley gets vacuum cleaner off of Laverne's mouth. So he just wanted to see what I'd invent to get it off of her mouth. And I think I finally just put my foot up to her <laughs> chest and pulled. <laughs> then he started writing physical comedy for me. Um, yeah, so Laverne and Shirley was just such a blessing for me. Though we're in a golden age of television right now, TV used to be viewed as a step down from the glamour of film. So Miss Williams was initially unsure about taking a TV role, even after she was offered a part in the original Charlie's Angels. This sounds silly, but I never even thought about television. Well, before, before Laverne and Shirley, I was offered Charlie's Angels. The part they wanted me to play was, I remember there was this one scene where the character rides through a vineyard on a horse and shoots a gun. <laughs> And it was the most ridiculous thing in the world to me. I mean, I do, I'm very bad at reading scripts and, and, you know, seeing their potential. I just am. And I said, oh, I could never do that. So I turned it down. And the next thing was Laverne and Shirley after, after that. But, I mean, could I have done that? I guess I could have, you know. But... <laughs> wasn't my cup of tea. But also, the dramas on television, it's serious. I mean, it's really well done, and it's done like film. Yeah. The creative aspect of it on all levels is just so superior to what we had. It's so different than what it is now. When Miss Williams was cast in Laverne and Shirley, she assumed it'd be easy to jump back into film. But it took a chat with the Fonz himself, Henry Winkler, to realize that switching to television might be a one-way street. When Laverne and Shirley came about and I had done films, I thought, well, I'll do this and then I'll go back to films. And I think it was Henry Winkler or someone said to me, you know, once you're in this, they don't let you go. And you're constantly likened to that character. And I didn't believe that. I thought I could trump that. But I couldn't, and I'm so blessed with what I have. I remember going in up for a movie while I was doing Laverne and Shirley. 
Warren Beatty was uh, directing it. And uh, I went in to meet him and he recognized me immediately. He said, oh, no, no, no. And that was when it hit me. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He said, it's just, I can't have a person as recognizable in the film. And I said, it's okay, it's all right. And I went home, I was so upset. And he, he was so nice, he called me and apologized. That's when it hit me that it was for real, that you, in those days, in there was no days, crossing, especially something as big as Laverne and yes, Shirley. Yeah. Laverne and Shirley was quite modern by focusing on a friendship between women. Yet, it also harkened back to classic screwball comedies like I Love Lucy and other famous sitcoms filmed live in front of a studio audience. Laverne and Shirley is filmed before a studio audience. The way we did like Laverne and Shirley is, it was done like a little stage play, but with cameras, right? Yeah, you did still, the three yeah, cameras, absolutely. and the cameras between the audience and the stage, so you still had the feeling of proscenium, but it was on film, and you could be a lot bigger. Film is a whole other deal. I find it absolutely different than doing a sitcom. You go out and you say one line or they call you at six in the morning and you're on camera doing a crying scene at seven in the morning. It's a very, very different ball game. I never could figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. I never did it long enough to learn the technique, and it's a totally different technique. And I've studied it on other actresses and actors, and it's about moves, attitude, but you have to keep yourself within the lens of the camera. It's just a different play. Francis Coppola used to say that when he would bring his actors in onto the set, he would have them go through the scene and he'd stand there with the DP because he said, your actors will show you where the camera should go. And that is just so brilliant because the actors intuitively go to where their bodies send them. Nowadays, the vast majority of half-hour comedies are single cam shows like Modern Family and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. No studio audience, no laugh track. <laughs> I said, no laugh track. See, better. But in the time of Laverne and Shirley, it was a very different story. We would get the script and we'd say, oh, this isn't going to work. This is thin here and it's not funny. It doesn't start off funny. It isn't dynamic enough. And so we just work on it and we work on it on our feet. The first day, maybe we'd try and block one scene, a scene that might have been full, that might work. And then we come in the next day, there's new pages, and you go through that and you see what they've changed, and you add that into the mix, and then because our show was very physical, as was Happy Days, we would walk it and try and just through body language and attitude and pacing, just lift it, just make it funny. And that would be the second day. And then they'd come back on Wednesday and there'd be a new script. And on Laverne and Shirley, we always aimed toward, there was always a big physical scene at the end. So it was all moving toward that. And we'd block that and that was just, uh, that was so exhausting. And so Penny and I would mark that and then there'd be a run-through where, you know, everybody's down there. And then on Thursday, the camera crew would come in, and they would be on wheels, so they'd follow us around So because they had to learn the show. So that day was stop and go, and we'd still be creating and trying to make things, you know, funnier props, funnier costumes, funnier. And we tried to get it so that it would make us laugh out loud because we figured what we laughed at 
an audience would laugh out loud at. And then Friday, you run through once, then, you know, scripts are out of your hand and you run through again, but we'd still get rewrites. That was like death-defying work. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I'd say to Penny, if Jesus walked the earth, he could make this work, but he'd be the only one who could make this work. And then sometimes we'd be standing behind the door before they'd yell action, and she'd say, do you know your lines? And i go, no, do you know yours? She said, no. And so, action! And we'd just go out, because it was so tiring and just so much stress but so gratifying, and especially when you heard the audience react. It was just, and that's the other thing in comedy, you don't know what the timing's going to be because you have to hold for the laughs, and you have to, you know, keep the rhythm going. It was very different in those days, but it was so gratifying when that audience came in and they reacted the way you were hoping and praying they would react. Part of what made Laverne and Shirley such a successful and beloved sitcom was how Cindy Williams and Penny Marshall fully owned the roles they played. The actual act of acting. It's every element of your being interpreting, filtering the words in the script through all your elements and assigning certain feelings you have that you feel are correct to that character. And then you have to forget about it. You've done all the work and then you go out there and you play it and you you own it, but it's going through you. It's your interpretation of it. You put it all together and that's the character. I mean, because you're given the map and you just interpret that map. It's going to be individual for everybody, how they go about it. And you can study people and see how they go about it. Like Meryl Streep, the first movie she was ever in, I remember critics saying, "Uh, watch this little move this wonderful actress does. She only has three lines. And she did this little thing before she said the line where she adjusts her approach. And I said, whoa. She added that. She flavored it with that. So it's also a little bit of your own flavoring and so it's just a myriad of things. Similar to Penny Marshall who went on to direct films like Big and Awakenings, Cindy Williams also expanded her career behind the camera. You know I took time off had my children but I produced well I got co-producer credit on Father the Bride and um, the way that came about was I my son woke me up one morning he was three years old and he he wanted to go downstairs and play so I took him downstairs to the den and Turner Classic Movies had just started and Father the Bride was on with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor I loved that movie as a kid and I thought this is like a big old sitcom and there's something for everybody what about an updated remake with Jack Nicholson And so it evolved, and it became Steve Martin, brilliant in it, and it turned out to be this marvelous, marvelous remake, and I was just so fortunate. But when you get an idea and you know that it's something special, you can feel it, your body will tell you, everything will tell you, and you've got to just follow that instinct because you're your own litmus paper for that. You've got to follow that instinct. When you get an idea and it takes your breath away, It's correct. Despite being on a hit TV show and acting for Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, one of Miss Williams' favorite roles was when she returned to her first love, the stage. Being on Broadway and doing The Drowsy Chaperone, and I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's a marvelous musical 
about musicals and theater and just getting to run on stage and when the orchestra came up it was just I'm getting goosebumps right now it was just thrilling and I was the first character on stage except for the narrator in the beginning and then he says don't you love theater that's how it begins and it is a marvelous musical he said don't you just love it sitting there in the dark and wondering when the lights are going to come up anyway it's this marvelous monologue before the lights come up and when the lights I got to play the character of when the lights came up and the and the music starts I run on stage and that for me of course the show was canceled three weeks into my run of the show, but I call that my three weeks on Broadway. But those were the most thrilling moments on stage for me. And part of what still makes the stage so thrilling for her is that sometimes it can go so wrong. You know, that's happened to me where I've gone up on stage more times than I'd like to admit to. but. You've got to stay in the play. I've watched myself on Laverne and Shirley where I'm like drifting off during a and, and I'm like not in, I'm just not present. And I don't know why I was tired or something, but I caught myself a few times. So you just have to make that note. You're here, listen to what's going on. Even if you're standing back or you're sitting back peeling an apple while the scene's going on, listen to what's going on. And you've got to stay present there. I'm talking to myself here, too. I'm giving myself some notes right now. I once actually, I had this play, and oh, I cut to the end. I only had 10 days rehearsal. We were doing, it was Joanne Worley and myself, and we were doing Female Odd Couple to try and save this theater, and we had like nine days rehearsal. And there were two lines that were similar at the end of two of these scenes, and one was in the third scene and one was at the end of the play and I just I started the speech for, she gave me the line and I'm still to this day not sure if she didn't say the wrong line but anyway I found myself going into the monologue for the end of the play but I wasn't aware of it and I thought this is going well and she's supposed to exit and I said and don't come back and she turns Joanne Worley turns in the wings and she goes don't you want to ask me about dating men and I go oh, my god yes yes I do and then I like my mind rolled back and I improvised for a while and then we got back on script but now we had done the end of the play so when I go off stage the stage manager goes, it was like noises off he said oh my god Joanne says wants to know what do you want to cut to when we cut and somehow some way we got through it and it was Neil Simon and I felt awful I mean he wasn't there thank God but I'm sure he heard about it but oh my god Talk about sweating through your suit jacket. I was mortified. But you can't be. I mean, I, you know, I had to finish the play, and we did. When asked about the best advice for a new performer, Miss Williams' answer was simple, direct, and profound. Pursue it, you know. I mean, <laughs> pursue it and, and think outside the box. And You've got to put your rhinoceros skin suit on. I had a publicist tell me this. You know, it's like not being invited to a party most of the time. You can't take it personally, although we all do, because you've, you know, you've opened yourself up to these people and then, you know, you don't get the part. 
but you just have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again, and, and be done with that day, and it's on to the next, and the next thing will happen, and you have to keep that attitude, but you just keep pursuing. Don't take any prisoners. Don't take no for an answer. Just keep going, and always think outside the box. Like if there's an audition that you might not be able to get in on, you can figure out a way to get in there. You've heard all those stories about people going after a part and also keep studying. Keep, keep doing like scene work and, and what you're doing here. Keep doing your thing, things can happen. To learn more about Cindy Williams' storied career, pick up her book, Shirley I Jest. We want to thank Ms. Williams for speaking to our students and we want to thank all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and produced by Tova Leiter and co-moderated with Linda Goodfriend. If you'd like to watch the full interview, you can find it on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself, executive produced by Tova Leiter, Jean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. And now, the theme to Laverne and Shirley, as read by me, Eric Connor. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight. Shamil, Shamazel, Hassan Pfeffer, Incorporated. We're gonna do it. Give us any chance, we'll take it. Read us any rule, we'll break it. We're gonna make our dreams come true. Doing it our way.